It's great to be with you all this morning, and uh, it's kind of crazy because, I don't know, has summer seemed long or short to you? Long, short, long, short. It just depends, right? I don't know. I've had some summers where it seems, I mean, the thing is, it depends on whether you have little kids living at home. You know, a lot of times summer seems fast unless you have little kids, and then they're home every day, and then it seems long. seems like, you know, it should, should be shorter. But anyway, uh, not because I don't love my kids, just because... Uh, They drive me crazy. That's it. Um, So we concluded our study of the book of Haggai, one of the minor, major prophets in the Old Testament Hebrew Bible. And so I was just praying on where we should go and and what we should do having finished that. And I think it's time to journey back into the New Testament. And I, I do think it's so important that Christian churches utilize the whole Bible in the life of the church. Um, I've, I've seen it happen where some churches, uh, Christian churches are probably going to lean more towards the New Testament, uh, some to the point where they don't really read the Old Testament, they don't study it anymore. Um, on the other hand, if you just teach verse by verse through the whole Bible, well, you'll notice uh, that about 80% of your Bible is Old Testament, so you'll be there. If you teach that way, you'll be in the Old Testament for years before you ever get to the new. So it's kind of like, what's the, the perfect way? And I don't think there is one. That's why churches do things differently. But I kind of like the idea of making sure we're kind of going back and forth, that we're uh, sort of even-handed, understanding that this is one story, the Bible is a narrative, and that both covenants of the old and the new are important and they're vital to each other in understanding. So having been in Haggai, I thought it would be exciting to move back into the New Testament, and we'll bring some of what we've learned from Haggai with us into our study of the New Testament. And so the book we'll be studying beginning today, and it'll take us till the end of November, and then that's when we get into our holiday messages, starting with Thanksgiving. That's just crazy thinking about that. That's going to go by so fast. So we're going to start today and finish by the end of November our study of the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Ephesians. We'll also have the passage up on the screen. And the title of the series through the book of Ephesians is The Riches of Gospel Community. The Riches of Gospel Community. I think that's probably, you can argue there's different themes, but for me, looking in there, this repeated use of the riches that we have in Christ is language that Paul uses. Um, But unfortunately, sometimes Christians... Protestants in particular have taken riches in Christ to refer simply to something they have privately as an individual. I have riches with God, and that's private, and that's later when I die. But very, very clearly in Ephesians, also included is the richness of gospel community. That there are riches being poured out now on God's people, and that it is actually demonstrably and visibly true and experiential in the life of a community that understands this. And so sometimes people have cling to um, the truth of having riches toward God, but then have not welcomed the idea that the riches of God are poured out amongst God's people and are meant to be shared with one another in authentic community. So I'm calling the title of the series, The Riches of Gospel Community. I think that holds together some of the key some of the key themes. So this morning we're going to begin and we're just going to look at the first two verses of chapter one. And I'm calling this morning's message, the power to change, the power to change. So if you would, let's just read these first two verses together. We'll pray and get into our study. Ephesians one, 
1 through 2. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we are able, the author of Hebrews says, to boldly enter into your presence because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, you have taught us that when you died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom and that veil represented the distance between God and man. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man would always mean, even if there's a relationship, there's always a distance. And so we believe that because of what Christ has done, we are able to come boldly into your presence and that we can ask for grace and that we can find it in our hour of need. And so I believe that we all have a need for your grace this morning. Some of us might not be aware of our need, and and yet we need it. Would you make us aware of our need? There's others of us, we are desperately aware of our need. Lord, we're overwhelmed. We've got decisions coming up soon. These could be life-changing decisions, and we desperately need your grace. Some of us are dealing with serious relationship problems. They're strains. They, they run deep. And maybe there's a lot of hurt and a lot of bitterness and a lot of resentment. And even as Christians, it looks like, well, I might be saved, but I don't think Christ can save this. I pray you would overwhelm us with your grace this morning. I pray that this grace would not only be for us, but it would be for our children for our grandchildren, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our co-workers. I pray your grace would be poured out on them no matter where they are, sleeping in, driving to the beach, getting ready for work, just walking the neighborhood. Would you pour out your grace on them? Would you bring them to Christ with your love, with your forgiveness, with your joy, and with your fulfillment? And we pray that we would be given these things also, not so that we can hoard it to ourselves, but that we can liberally share it with others. We pray for a blessing now so that Jesus would receive the honor and glory that he deserves. We pray this now in his name. Amen. Again, so I'm calling this morning's message, The Power to Change. We're just looking at uh, the first couple of verses, and I have three key points uh, for us, the takeaway points. And I'll move quickly after I state those points to go into our text and sort of unpack what's going on. And since it's the beginning of Ephesians, it's the beginning of the book, I'll also use this introduction to kind of unpack a little bit about the writer of Ephesians as well, this man called Paul. So number one, my first point in our message, the power to change is this. No person or relationship is beyond the reconciling power of Jesus the Messiah. Say it with me. No person or relationship is beyond the reconciling power of Jesus the Messiah. Now let me show you where I'm getting this from. Look at the very first line. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Well, who is this Paul? 
there's a lot of people that don't know who Paul is. And so if they read this verse or they hear this verse, they don't come with all the knowledge that perhaps you have or that could be assumed at some other time in history where maybe people just, you know, I mean, there was a time in American history, I won't say America was, you know, uh, there's a big argument. Was America ever a Christian nation? There's, it depends on how you define that. Um, obviously, slavery was a part of America from the very beginning, so you don't want to say it was Christian in that sense. Very gross violations of the image of God were taking place from the very beginning. We have to acknowledge that, not just, you know, oh, no, it was all fine. Everything was perfect back then. No, it wasn't. But on the other hand, we, we also don't want to ignore the fact that the Bible was the textbook for schools. Like literally in the schoolhouses or if parents were raising their kids and teaching them at home before you know, public schools or before a town was suitably big enough to actually build a schoolhouse for children to go, the Bible was their textbook. Everyone knew the Bible. It was, it was sort of like the Iliad was for the Greeks in, in ancient Greece. It was the book they all knew that oriented their way of looking at the world. So we can't assume that everybody knows about Paul. And even people that know about Paul, sometimes they forget who he was or they don't reflect deeply on who he was and how that would impact his being not only an apostle, but even a Christian. So first of all, who was Paul? Let's see who Paul was in his own words. In Philippians 3, 4b through 6, Paul, he's, he's arguing, he's, he's defending himself. And this is what he says about who he is. Listen to this. If anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the Torah, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So, first of all, Paul was a Jew. He was Jewish. He was not a Gentile though he would be the apostle to the Gentiles and is largely associated with the Gentile mission, and, and, and rightly so. But he was not a Gentile. He was a Jew. And what he says here is he was more than a Jew. He was is about a strict and devout a Jew as one could possibly be. And in a sense for Paul and for his contemporaries, these facts of his life would have made him probably the most unlikely candidate to be a Christian. Paul shouldn't be a Christian. Paul should be the last one to be a Christian. Paul is an inheritor of a long line of faithful Jews. We know this because he was circumcised on the eighth day. From the very beginning of his entrance into the world, he was an observer of the Torah. There was not a time in his life when he was not strictly observant of it, nor of his family. He is of the stock of Israel. He wasn't, like so many, bred with other people groups where they lost their identity. 
His line was kept pure. So pure, interestingly, and people pass this over, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. After the dispersion, after the exile, many of the Jews lost their ancestry. But in the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah comes back and they're rebuilding the temple, there's one particular people group or tribe that seems to have kept their ancestral records. Which tribe did Nehemiah mention? The tribe of Benjamin. The Benjamites really kept track of their ancestral record when many did not, or perhaps didn't see it as being advantageous to do so. Being of the tribe of Benjamin, there's a rich history which goes into his name. It says here, Paul, an apostle, but what was his real name? Saul. His parents did not call him Paul. They would call him Saul. Who was the greatest Benjamite of all? Saul, the first king of Israel, very likely whom Saul is named after. His heritage was rich in the Jewish way of life. It says he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and this is an important little note for your Bible reading. Many people think when they read the word Hebrew in the New Testament, and then they see the word Jew, that those two are the same thing. They are not. We know from both biblical and extra-biblical writings, the word Hebrew is a more specialized term than the word Jew. A Jew could be, for example, a Hellenistic Jew. A Jew that spoke Greek and uh, perhaps adopted to the Greek customs, and, and, and if you were a particularly reprehensible traitor, you might have even undergone uncircumcision, which was an actual surgery performed that we know. We have actually documents explaining how it was done. And you would undergo that so that when you went to the Greek gymnasium, which was the place where business got done in the Greek and Roman world, if you wanted business, you wanted to make money, you wanted to climb your way to the top, you couldn't be a Jew because in the Greek world, they were all, they worked out in the nude, a little weird, but they did. They all worked out in the nude in the gymnasium and in the spas. And you knew who was circumcised and who wasn't. I remember growing up as a kid, you know, I'm being taught the Bible and I'm reading about circumcision like over and over and over, like all the time. And I remember just, you know, being a little boy, like five years old, like, why, why do they talk about their pee-pee so much, Daddy? Like, like, seriously, it's weird. Like, they're always talking about it. And, and it's because of what it represents. It's not, it's not the thing itself. It's what it represents. And in that culture, when... The gymnasium was sort of the, the cultural marketplace. And the fact that they would see each other in the nude, these things were prominent and it marked you out who you belonged to, what people group you were. And so there were many kinds of Jews, but the word Hebrew is a special term. We're not precisely sure the way it was always used, but we can tell you some defining things that seem to go along with the term. Number one, a Hebrew as opposed to a Jew was someone who spoke Hebrew and or Aramaic. It's part of what being a Hebrew. You did not lose the language of your motherland. You kept it. Whether you were in the dispersion or not, you kept it. And obviously it was an easier thing to do if you were in the motherland, if you were in Palestine which makes Paul's upbringing even more interesting. I'll get to that. He doesn't mention uh, where he grew up in this list, but I'll, I'll talk about that. So Hebrew is somebody who 
maintained the ancestral language of Hebrew and Aramaic. He probably would have attended a synagogue that also spoke in Hebrew. He was also somebody who, rather than being grafted into the Gentile word around him, was actually sent away to Jerusalem. And he actually learned under the feet of one of the great rabbis of Jewish history, a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel's grandfather was a man named Hillel the Elder. Hillel the Elder is considered to be one of the most important rabbis in history. And so influenced by Hillel the Elder and Gamaliel, you can actually see their teachings, their principles of biblical exegesis in the New Testament if you know to look for them. For example, Hillel the Elder wrote famously a list of seven rules of exegesis. Seven rules. This is, remember, first century B.C. You can find all seven being used in the New Testament. Because Paul is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. His family kept their lineage. They kept their line. They kept their traditions. They did not allow their identity to be sifted out. Now it says concerning the law, and again, if you, if you don't know the Bible real well, you know, you hear law and you hear rules, like we have laws in America. Oh, he just kept the laws, but they were the laws over there. No. The word law here is namas in Greek, and namas in Greek is the translation of Torah in Hebrew. So he's not just talking about the rules, like I, I don't speed on the freeway, I, I kept the law. You know, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the Torah concerning the five books of Moses, concerning the law of Moses. I was blameless. He says that he was a Pharisee. We know that there were three basic sects of Judaism, and then those can be subdivided. So when we talk about Judaism, we have to be careful because sometimes people talk about Judaism as though it was like one united front. That's not true. Uh, One scholar put it this way, we must speak of Judaisms, not Judaism. There were different sects. But the three major ones were the Essenes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees were sort of the party of the people. And they were the people of the book. The Sadducees were more the elite. And they were the guardians of the temple institution. The Pharisees were the ones who studied the Torah and were meticulous in its observance. The Essenes were sort of a uh, sectarian, separatist group that actually moved out to the wilderness, believing that all of Israel had become defiled. They wouldn't even sacrifice at the temple, as a matter of fact. Even when it was built, they're like, nope, it's been defiled. You have unrighteous kings and unrighteous priests. We're not even going there. We're going to go out into the desert because we believe the Messiah is coming. And they would engage in all kinds of ritual baths, seeking to be holy and to be ready whenever the Messiah would return. And they were sure he would come for them and them alone and he would destroy everybody else. Paul was not just a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was not just Jewish. He was not just brought up that way. He was somebody who dedicated his life to being a teacher of the Torah, studied under the great rabbis of his time and all of history, really. And then he says concerning zeal. And zeal is not just, it's beyond this idea of, you can have this, this scholars, a lot of, well, the rabbis were all scholars in a sense. But a scholar can sit around and talk about a lot of ideas, but then they don't go do anything about it. They just talk about it. 
They can debate every possible idea under the sun. Oh, well, this could be this, could be this, it could be this, here's what it is, or it might not be this, here's 25 different ways of looking at this, here you go, and that's it. When he means zeal, he's like, when I took apart these ideas and analyzed them, when I heard the oral tradition, when I would wrestle with what's going on in our culture, when I would reflect on what this new engagement with Rome means for us in Jerusalem, when I did all I didn't just do it so I could go back to a classroom and talk about it. For me, when I studied the Torah and gave my life to it, it is so I could live it out to its fullest. He says concerning the Torah, zeal. And how is that zeal mentioned? Well, it came out in a number of ways, but here's one. Persecuting the church. Paul is the most unlikely candidate for Christianity because at one time he saw Christianity as a dangerous enemy of Judaism. Dangerous. As a matter of fact, if it's the same Gamaliel that's mentioned in Acts, Gamaliel seems to have taken a much more, I don't know what we, perhaps liberal uh, sort of hands-off approach to Christianity. When the disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin, and they're going to get ready to beat them or stone them or whatever, the, the wise Gamaliel, who everybody listened to, and we're pretty sure uh, it was Paul's teacher, he gets up and he says, let these men alone. If this is not from God, it'll fail. And he, and he mentions, we've had numerous messianic movements. It's not like it's new in Judaism to think you may have found the Messiah. But what happens in these messianic movements? There's a Messiah, wannabe Messiah that rises up, gathers a following, and then he's killed, and the movement's over. That's how it normally goes. So he says, look, leave these men alone. It's going to fade. It always does. Just let it go. But he said, here's why it's wise also to let them go. If it is of God, then nothing can stop it, and you will be found simply fighting against God. So Gamaliel doesn't, he doesn't become a Christian. He doesn't say, oh, Jesus is the Messiah and all that. But he takes this kind of handoff approach to it. Like, just let it play out. That's, that's what he did. Paul, who's a student of his, disagrees. And he's like, look, old man, you're taking your hands off. We need to nip this in the bud. Some have pointed out, and there's no name, uh, but in the, the Jewish records, there's, there's a story of a student of Gamaliel's who was so audacious as to argue against his teacher and say that he was wrong. Some people wonder if, if perhaps that was Paul. We don't know. He certainly seems like he has the personality type to do it. There's no name, but it, it makes for interesting thought and reflection. But we know for Paul, he didn't sit back and go, oh, Christianity, it might be true for you, but not for me. Like Paul did not have a religiously pluralistic worldview. Not at all. He's like, you're either right or you're wrong. And Christianity is wrong. And he was passionate about this truth. And so he actually made it his aim to destroy the church, the Christian church, to stamp out the movement of the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. We'll get a little bit more to that in a moment. And he ends this section saying, and concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's a pretty audacious statement. Um, and this, this throws a lot of doubt on some of Luther's later reading of Paul. Um, I, I think Luther got some things right. Um, but one of the things Luther does is Luther, in his, uh, 
In his famous biography, in his story, he talks about how he wrestled with a guilty conscience. He was a, he was a Catholic monk, and he was desperately trying to make himself right with God. He saw God, he believed in God, but he thought God was just angry and ticked, and like honestly just looking to throw people into hell, like, like he's looking for an excuse to do it. And so Luther is doing everything, he's starving himself, he's beating himself. He would literally, he was found unconscious by his abbot because he had whipped himself into a state of blood loss where he had passed out on the floor. He was wrestling with a guilty conscience. And then famously, Luther reads Galatians or Romans, there's an argument about which one he read, but he either read Romans or Galatians, and he started reading about grace the grace of God, and that God is not looking for an excuse to get rid of you. He's doing the opposite. He's literally saying, over my dead body will I let you go. That Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from all of these things, these things that we, we experience guilt and we think God wouldn't possibly want us. And Luther read these passages and he, he felt set free. I would still say his commentary on Galatians is, is one of the most edifying commentator, commentators on Galatians to date. Yet, when we go back and ask, did Luther rightly read Paul? I feel in some ways that he did not. When Luther read the law, he didn't say blameless. He felt guilty. We don't have a guilty conscience in Paul. We don't see a man plagued by guilt. Perhaps later, especially after he kills Stephen and Stephen bears witness. We'll talk about that also in a moment. But we see a man who says, when I look at the law that makes a lot of people feel guilty, I don't feel guilty. I'm blameless. Outwardly, Paul was doing all the right things. But his unrighteousness was not outward. It would ultimately be revealed as inward. And it is seen not just in private religious beliefs, but in what he was able to do to other human beings. If he was so right, why was he killing people? Is that what the truth does? If he was so right, why are you grabbing men, women, and children and dragging them to prison? Something can't be right about that. So that's this man. That's Paul. And believe me, the more you read about Jewish history the more you read about the intertestamental period, very important period of history to know, and you see the ongoing constant struggle of land constantly changing hands. Constantly changing hands. We don't know anything about that over here in America where we're constantly changing hands. But in that part of the world, it was just all these kingdoms were constantly at war all the time and taking over. And one of the main ways of maintaining political peace was interbreeding and removing people's identity so that they don't want to kill you anymore. And so this idea of maintaining Jewish identity was reinforced generation after generation in the furnace of life and death. This was no small thing. This wasn't just, oh, I like my Christmas traditions. I'd like to keep them. This is deep, deep, deep stuff. And Paul saw converting to Christianity as an apostasy of all those things. And yet our text this morning reads, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's what makes this next phrase in that same line all the more important. By the will of God. 
Listen to Acts 8.1.3. Again, a little more background on Paul. Now Saul was consenting to his death. That's Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Why I read that to you is that's the will of Paul right there. That's the will of Paul. Paul wanted to destroy Christianity and wipe it off the map. Paul went beyond just, hey, let's get him out of Jerusalem. Because some in his party were like, look, we hate him too. We just want to get him out of here. Paul's like, I'm not going to rest till they're gone. Because they can always come back and infect other people. So I'm actually going to chase. And he got letters to extradite. There was extradition agreements, we know, between Israel and the Romans. And so Paul could actually get extradition rights from the Sanhedrin to go out outside of Palestine and arrest Christians wherever they were and bring them back and try them under their own law. That was the will of Paul. But here it says, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. What's my point? A lot of people think Christianity is just a religion that you choose. But for Paul, it's a relationship that chooses you. For a lot of people, religion is more just, well, it's what I want, it's what I like. Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors, you got 31 religions. I like vanilla. That's what, you know, and you like chocolate, hey, whatever. That's not how it is. It is not a fla- it is, and here's the thing, I, I've shared this before. I'm not, a, I'm not against the word religion per se, although it can have negative connotations. There's a saying going around, and I do think it's useful, so I'll use it. have to qualify it. But Christianity is not about religion. It's about relationship. I think that is a helpful statement. The only problem I have with it is, again, religion uh, assumes this idea of corporate identity and practices that reinforce identity. Well, Christianity does fit it in that sense. But it is about relationship. And if it's not just about this abstract idea of what I choose, some flavor... If it's actually a relationship, then there's a two-way street, isn't there? In any relationship, it isn't just you choosing. The person has to choose you. When you go to get married, at least in our culture, right? That'll be my cultural sphere. It hasn't always been this way in history. But in our culture, if you want to get married, you can't just walk up to someone and say, Hey, you're cute. You're going to be my wife or husband. Doesn't work that way. Or you can do that. They'll just probably run. What has to happen? You can feel that way all you want, but that person has to choose you back. They have to say, yes, I choose you. They're also free to say, I don't want you. I don't choose you. And I think what we see time and again in the Bible is that Christianity is a relationship in which you are chosen. Paul was literally arrested by Jesus. It's now famous in Western culture. Um, Some people, when they have a turning point in their life, and all of a sudden they were going this way in life, even if they weren't a religious person, all of a sudden they're going this way, they call it my road to Damascus, my Damascus moment. Why is that? 
Because Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And he has a religious experience. He encounters Christ. This guy with all this pedigree who hates Christians, he sees them not just as, oh, I agree to disagree, but you are dangerous and you deserve to die or be in prison. And he's a thinker, by the way. He's not one of these feely people that never studied anywhere, didn't go to school, didn't reflect. And he's just moved by emotions, all that. This is a deep, deep, deep thinker. He's a rabbi. He's a deep thinker. And he has this powerful religious experience that he did not choose. He did not decide the day or the hour when Christ would appear to him. If it were up to him to decide, he never would have met him. And it does not say by the will of Paul. It says by the will of God. God chooses Paul and meets Paul there. And Paul falls down. And he hears the voice of Jesus who says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's chasing the church, but he meets this man, Jesus, who says, why are you persecuting me? To persecute the Lord's church is to persecute Jesus. Notice that. That's how linked the church and Jesus are. And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus answers back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul, in his zealousness for the law, blameless in his own mind, is radically countered by this experience. And even detractors of Paul, people who want to say, no, no, whatever. But how do you account for a man who is going this way, who is that knowledgeable, had that pedigree, was that zealous, was that invested. And you know when you start doing things, when you start committing violence, you become addicted to the violence. When you start sinning, you become addicted to the sin. He's deep in this anger and hatred, even if outwardly, religiously, it looks fine. But he is angry. He's full of hatred. He's able to kill. And that's when Jesus meets him. As I reflect on this text, I can't help but have revived hope for people in my life. We might have sons and daughters, grandchildren, friends, family members, and we honestly say to ourselves, no way. Like, no way. Like, just certain people you know. I can't, like, it's not, not happening can't happen, won't happen. And then on the other side of that, we look at certain people, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're a nice person, you don't do this and you do this, oh, and you're, you're open to talk, oh, you're, you're close, oh, you're going to be this. And life is quite ironic. There's people that look like, oh, you're an easy candidate to be a Christian. And they never choose to follow Jesus, even though it looks like they're that close. The, their whole lives, they're right there. They never actually follow Jesus. And Follow him as Lord. And then there's people like Saul. I don't know if there's any people like Saul, but in that direction where it's like, I hate this. I hate it. And I want to destroy it. And that's the purpose of my life. And by the will of God, those are the ones that God chooses. And they are brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. No person, no relationship, 
is beyond the reconciling power of Jesus the Messiah. I think it's important to know that this message of the gospel is not just for people who aren't Christian. Hey, here's the gospel, and this is what God's doing for you, and, and you, know, you come to Jesus. The gospel is for all of us who've been following Jesus for a long time as well. Because I know there's people where they experience, perhaps they would call it almost a Damascus Road experience. I wasn't a Christian at all, wanted nothing to do with it, and I became a Christian. But then 30 years later, I've experienced, maybe I'm not going to hell when I die, but I'm experiencing hell now, and I don't think Jesus can do anything about it. This relationship is so far gone, so soured, so full of bitterness and resentment, and just bad history that can never be undone. Bad history that can never be forgotten. And I believe this relationship is past the reconciling power of Jesus. Christians need to hear this morning that there is no person or relationship beyond the reconciling power of Jesus. That is not just true for those that don't know Jesus at all. It is true for those who do and who believe their present circumstances are somehow beyond his power. That whether it's you, you're like, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. My life is not turning out the way I want and I'm just not going to follow him anymore. I'm done. I don't hate him, but I'm just done. And that scares you that you feel that way because Christians shouldn't feel that way, right? But you do. Is Jesus able to save you? I believe so. Again, it may be somebody in your life and they, they want nothing to do with you. They want nothing to do with God. And it seems like there's no hope. But as I read this phrase, Paul, Saul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, I feel that there is nothing but hope to those who know Jesus. And I take comfort in the fact that Christianity is not just a religion that people choose, but a relationship in which you are chosen. I am in no way ruling out human freedom and human free choice. I believe it's involved. But if it's a relationship, that's a two-way street. And it isn't just about the flavor you choose. It is about God choosing you. Second point. The gospel is not just a means by which individuals are changed, but also by which new communities are formed for the benefit of the world. Look at the next line. To the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. That phrase will occur all throughout Paul's writings, so you better be familiar with it and know what he means by it. In Christ. What does that mean, in Christ? In Christ is a covenantal term. It means you are in covenantal union with God through Christ. And this is where Paul's doctrine of the Holy Spirit comes in. How can you be in Christ? Especially if you think of Christ historically. He is this, he's this man and he's standing here and he's, separ he's a separate being from me. How can we be in Christ? The Holy Spirit unites the believer to Christ so that they are one with Him redemptively. There's a sense in which all human beings, in one sense, are in God. In a certain sense, not redemptively, but ontologically, in terms of their being. 
That's why Paul, in Acts 17, can quote a pagan Greek philosopher and actually say they're right. As some of your own poets have said, for in him we live and move and have our being. We are the offspring of God. A Greek pagan said that. And Paul quotes it affirmatively, saying that's true in a sense, but not redemptively. You are the estranged children of God. Your relationship is broken. You come from him, but you are not right with him. And this idea of the Spirit uniting us in Christ, in covenant, is also used in tandem with this idea of adoption. That we are adopted back into the family of God. And this is why that story of the prodigal son is is so helpful in explaining what God is doing in salvation. Because anyone knows from that story, especially back then, I mean, it's insulting even now if you think about it, but especially back then in an honor-shame culture in the first century, if a son went up to his father while he's still alive and says, Father, I want my inheritance now. That is the ultimate insult. That's literally saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my stuff unbelievable that is enough even now how horrible is that but imagine that back then when children could be killed or ostracized for dishonoring their parents and how dishonoring that dad i wish you were dead give me your stuff and what does the father do says okay son you wish i was dead i'm gonna allow you to live that way you wish there was no god all right I'm going to allow you to live that way. Here, take what I made. Take creation. Go, go do whatever you want. And the prodigal son goes, and it's, he's, he's the father's son, but he's, he's cut off. And he blows his inheritance, and it's completely gone. He's got nothing. The relationship is broken. His inheritance, gone. But then he realizes things are so bad living his life without God, without the father, that he comes back. And it's the father's initiative. It's his decision. He does not have to do this. And indeed, the older, older brother thinks the father shouldn't forgive this man. But the father loves him so much that he doesn't even wait. Once again, grace. God runs. The father runs to his son because he loves his son. And he puts his robe around him and his signet ring. And he slaughters the fatted calf and he brings it home. And he's like, son, I don't care that you shamed me with your whole life. I love you. And there's no amount of shaming or sin you can do that will ever make me stop loving you. That's what that story says. And of course, the elder brother is the one who's kept the rules. Outwardly, this would be more the Saul figure. Saul would say, I was, bl- I was never a prodigal son. I was never a prodigal son. I wouldn't do that. I was, bl- I was the elder brother who kept the rules. But we see from the story, the elder brother did not keep the rules out of love. The elder brother's angry at the father. How dare you welcome him back home? I've done everything for you. I've kept all the rules and I haven't even gotten my stuff yet. Now I'm worried I might lose some of my stuff if you welcome him back. The older son was keeping the rules, but eventually one day when God's grace was manifest to a sinner who didn't deserve it, the elder brother's heart beneath the rules was exposed. 
He did not love the way the father loved. And the end of that story is that the father invites the elder brother to come into the feast. And you know from the Old Testament, it is a sacred duty to enter into the feastal joy of the Lord. To refuse to enter into the feastal joy of the Lord is to excuse yourself from God's kingdom. And the story ends there. We don't know what the elder brother does. But we see one elder brother that entered in. Saul was an elder brother figure who kept the rules, but not out of a love for God. It was misguided. He thought it was. I think a lot of what he did was understandable given what he experienced, what his people group experienced, what he had to worry about giving up. But when he encountered Christ, Saul becomes the elder brother that enters into the feastal joy of the Lord. To be in Christ is to experience this. And it means to be a part of a family. And that idea right there is, you know, are you willing to come in to the community of the Father knowing there'll be people you hate? There'll be people who've done things that you never would have done. And that's true of all of us, by the way. It doesn't matter how big of a sinner you are. There's probably some sin that someone else has done that you would just never do. And you can always feel a little bit superior about that. Well, I never. Isn't that like a, the parent's line? You know, well, I never. You know, it's like, well, that's because it was illegal back then or whatever. You would have been shot or something. Will we enter into this community where we are in Christ and we welcome all sinners from everywhere. That's different than just saying, hey, do you want to go to heaven when you die? That's, that's, in a sense, that's easy. Yeah, I don't want to go to hell when I die. Yes, I'll take that right now. Okay, by the way, what this means is you will form a gospel community in which you will do life with people who have sinned greatly, including ways in which you never would. And you're going to have to grow because you're always going to be tempted to be the elder brother who refuses to go to church with this person. I refuse to see myself as not just equal, but a servant to this person because of what they've done. But this is what the gospel means. It actually means entering into glorious communities of the gospel in which we belong to one another as we belong to Christ. The word saint is used here, and again, that's a very biblical word that's often been misunderstood in church history. A saint is not a sort of elite Christian. It's not somebody who's done X number of things and all this, and that's why they're a saint. In the New Testament, a saint refers to any and every Christian, every single one, not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ has done for them. You are a saint if you are in Christ. And remember, we talked about holiness a couple weeks back. The word saint comes from the word holiness. What does world holiness mean? It means to be set apart. The term saint denotes your purpose, not your spiritual maturity. It denotes your purpose. If, you are a, if you're in Christ, you are a saint. And if you are a saint, you are set apart for God, for what he wants to do in the world. It's not about what you want to do. There's a lot of Christians, for example, don't want to go to church anymore. Statistically, this is a fact. You can see the number of people that want nothing to do with church. Oh, I'm going to have a private little relationship with Jesus, but I want nothing to do with his people. Well, there's, that's not very saintly. 
That's you being set apart for your own purposes. That's not being a saint. And if you're a Christian, you really have this that you claim, then you will be set apart visibly for God's purpose. And His purpose in the world is to work through the body of Christ, the church, to be at the vanguard of new creation. So we are called to be a part of community. We're not just called to be individuals who are changed, but new communities formed to help change the world. And lastly, point number three, becoming a Christian is not based on what you do for God, but on receiving what God has done for you in Jesus the Messiah. Look at verse two. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to unpack such Christian jargon, grace, faith, what are these things? Well, I'll give you the Sunday school definition I always heard, and I'll expand on it a little more. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. That's not a bad definition, and it's, it's brief. But grace is, is more than that. It's rich, it's varied, it can be defined in more than one way. Here's another way I put it. Grace is God's unparalleled benevolence on display in refusing to wait until sinners become right, but in God taking the initiative to make sinners right with Him. When Paul thinks of grace, and remember who we said Paul was, when Paul writes this simple introductory greeting that most people when they read the New Testament won't think twice that he just said it. But let me assure you, when Paul used the word grace, he always thought twice about it. It's grace that changed Paul's life. The fact that Paul is writing this to, and we believe, a Gentile church is evidence of the grace of God, the arresting grace of God, the election of God on Paul's life. He'll never forget that he was the foremost enemy, and he doesn't forget. And he reflects on it later in his writings. He calls himself the least of all the apostles. He's the lowly. That's what he says about himself. Which is quite weird, because number one, we'd be like, Paul, you need to have more self-esteem. Don't, don't say that. Secondly, even objectively, uh, Paul, not only are you not the least, I might say you're number one. What other apostle has brought the gospel to more places than you? Nobody. Paul was the foremost evangelist missionary of the early church. And he says, I am the least. It's because he remembers where he came from. He knows that he was an enemy of God. But it's that grace of God that worked in him that allowed him to take his failure, his rebellion, his disobedience, and even the sins he committed, the violence he had done, and God turned it all around and used it powerfully. You could see there was energy in the life of Paul. And he was using it prior to Christ, but the wrong way. And the Gospel redirects that power into the way that God has designed for Paul from before the world was made. A line that Paul uses. He sees himself one like Jeremiah, whom before he was in the womb, God knew him and chose him. That's the language Paul uses. God knew who he wanted to be and where he wanted me to go. Yes, I have 
human free will in a sense, but God is also sovereign, and he will get history where he wants it to go in accordance with his promises. So grace is that unparalleled. It's the idea that God takes the initiative. I think a lot of people don't don't think of God that way. They think of God as sitting back, and i got to chase him down. i got to do a bunch of stuff to get his attention. He's like the dad that's there, but it doesn't take an interest in his kids. You know, the kid's like riding in a unicycle and juggling. Dad, can you look at me? Dad, can you have some time with me? And dad's like, ah, whatever, kid, Psh, go away. The God of the Bible is gracious in that he's always looking for us even when we're not looking for him. Peace is the well-being and harmonious relationships that result from God's grace. Not only can we know that we have peace with God, but through the gift of the Spirit, we can have peace with others, including a peaceful heart towards our enemies. That's something Paul didn't know much about earlier on in his life. He thought to have peace, I've got to exterminate the people that don't agree with me. I've got to arrest them, I've got to torture them, I've got to kill them, then we can have peace. But God's grace gives Paul a peace in his heart so that he doesn't have to do these things to people. He can actually love people who hate him. And that only results from having this supernatural peace of God implanted in his heart by the Holy Spirit. I just hope that we can be encouraged this morning of the power of the gospel to change. The power of the gospel to change people who don't know Jesus, but honestly, probably for most of us this morning, the power of the gospel to continue to change us, to change our lives. The relationships where we're starting to write off God, or maybe some of us are getting back into old habits. We were doing the right thing, going the right path, but we started, uh, this is a tough season. I'm I'm taking the exit. I'm going to go live here for a while. Trust that the gospel is powerful enough to change you right now and set you right back on course to following the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you so much for the grace and peace that you are offering us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for choosing the Apostle Paul, not just for his own benefit, but for ours to see that somebody who had every reason in the world not to have anything to do with you ever or to associate with the people that would come to bear your name. That you chose him and that you used him to bring glory to you and that you revealed the riches of your grace and forgiveness. And so I just pray this morning, Lord, that we would experience the power of the gospel to change the good news about what you are doing in and through Jesus. I pray that right now you would touch our friends and family members, children, grandchildren, husbands, wives, whoever they might be, Lord, just touch our hearts with the gospel. Lord, if we're going down a Damascus road for all the wrong reasons, would you just arrest us? Would you intervene? People often say freedom is being able to do whatever you want, but I don't see it that way. If doing what I want is destroying me and destroying others, I don't think that's freedom. Freedom is being able to choose what we were made for. And through Jesus and the Spirit, you're offering to change us from the inside out so that we can be 
the people we were meant to be and to do and live the way we were meant to live. Pray you just do a mighty work in and amongst us today. In Jesus' name, amen.